0: The kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. One young exile with uncompromising faith. This is God's grand plan to achieve the unimaginable. Well, we continue in the book of Daniel, and you'll remember back when we started in chapter 1, Daniel was a young man. He was probably in his late teens. Remember what had happened? The Babylonians had marched their way into Judah, and they had taken all these people out of Judah, out of Israel, and brought them back to Babylon. And so he was in exile. He was taken out of his homeland, but he was a young man. Today, we're going to be in chapter 9, and now he's on the other end of life. He has now neared, remember the reason they were there, they had disobeyed God, so they were going into exile for 70 years. We are now towards the end, if not at the end, of the 70 years. So you can see he's an elderly man, we want to dive into his life, but probably by this time in the series, getting to know Daniel has been part of this journey, right? Who is this man Daniel? What, what could we say about him? And certainly some of the things we would say about Daniel is that he was a man of the scripture. He read his Bible. He read the Torah. He read the prophets, right? We know that he was surrounded by some godly people, his friends we read about, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So we saw him surrounded by... By Godly men. And then we also know that when you get older, there's just a little more life to reflect on. And so Daniel's reflecting on a lot of his life. Some of the dreams that he had, some of the experiences he had, some of the visions he had. I mean, all these different things. Remember the decision that he wasn't going to eat the king's food and he was going to lean into God and trust God. And then there were times when he wouldn't bow to a golden image and, and there were consequences to that, right? And, and so he's reflecting on all these different things. And last week, we kind of left him in this place where he had been given a vision, he sensed what God was doing, things were moving towards the end of the 70 years, and it says that he, he had this disquieted spirit. He actually felt ill, and then there's this word appalled. He was appalled at all that was going to uh, transpire after the 70 years. And of course, the 70 years is significant because then they're going to return to the land, right? So we think about this, but one of the things I think all of us would say about Daniel, I I think there would be one thing we would say is that he was very God-centered. His life was oriented around God and what God had to say. I mean, like if there's ever a major takeaway from a book, it's like, let's be God-centered in the way that Daniel was. In fact, it was A.W. Tozer who said this. He said, your concept of God is the most important thing about you, and it will determine your future. Now just pause for a moment. Dwell on that. Your concept of God is the most important thing about you. Not your job, not your spouse if you have one, not your friends, not your money, not like whatever. The most important thing about you is your concept of God and it will determine the course of your life. So what is your concept of God? What is your concept of God? And does that concept of God allow you to trifle with God? Well, let's look at Daniel chapter 9 and get a further glimpse into Daniel's concept of God. If you're able to stand, could I invite you to stand as we read a few verses out of Daniel chapter 9? Daniel chapter 9. It says, in verse 1, it says, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Let's skip to verse 17. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name we do not make request of you because we are righteous but because of your great mercy lord listen lord forgive lord hear and act for your sake my god do not delay because your city and your people bear your name let's just pray together father We just thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. God, we thank you for the prophetic nature of it, how you stand apart from all the gods of this world, how you declare the future and make things happen. It's, God, you at work. And so this morning as we study your word, stir the affections, draw us closer into your bosom, and, God, let us be the people you've called us to be as we get to know you, our God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may grab a seat. Well, this morning, just have two points that I want to drive out. And first one is this: a soft and supple heart opens the way to deep prayer. And we didn't read all of Daniel's prayer, but one of the things we begin to see with Daniel over and over, with this God-centeredness, this life that's oriented around God, is he has this soft and supple heart that opens the way to deep prayer, right? There, there's this prayer that we're going to be studying a little bit more. But one of the things that I pondered as I'm studying Daniel is the prayers that we see not only in Daniel, but the Old Testament, and how they are so rich and so powerful. And I'm like, why are they so different? I mean, if I just read their prayers, yeah, that's good to read them and, and pray them myself, right, as if they're my own. But there's something that's rooted in his heart. There's something that has transformed his way of thinking that changes the way he even prays. So you could read the prayers of Abraham or Isaac or the prayers of Moses or now we're reading the prayers of Daniel or you think of the prayers of Deborah. I mean, a powerful song that she wrote that's just moving and driving, and then there's Esther and Ruth, and right, the list goes on through the Old Testament, and you can trip right on into the New Testament. But one of the things we begin to see is, is this softness, right? There, there, there's this softness towards God. Now, I'm not talking about wimpy. I mean, you can say a lot of things about Daniel, but you cannot say he's a wimp. I mean, he stood up against the most powerful king in the world at that time. He defied him because he would not dishonor his God. So whatever you want to say about Daniel, you can't call him a wimp, but you can say he had a soft heart towards God. His heart was one of humility. It was one of, I'm not going to force my way against the true and living God. That's what I mean by a soft heart. And then a supple heart. A supple heart is is this idea that he's going to let God mold him into his image rather than us trying to mold God into our image. And we spend way too much of our life trying to do that. Hate to put you in that spot, but let's just be honest with each other. When God is doing things we don't like, or when things are going on in our lives we don't want, what what we try to do is shape God into the way he ought to act and the way he ought to behave, right? But Daniel flipped all that, and he was soft and supple in God's hand. So now let's get the timing of all this that's taking place. Let's look a little closer at verse 1. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, it says, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, right? Now, the Bible's using some names and some things like that, but he gives us a clue in the parentheses, a mead by descent. Now, Daniel already knew that this was going to happen, right? The Babylonians now are off center stage. Think about that. Think about the United States, a world-class power, right? I mean, superpower." And all of a sudden, you're swept off a of center stage. That was Babylon. They were center stage. And remember last time we saw the, the, the ram with the two horns, the Medes and the Persians? Well, the Medes aren't going to last that long, and the Persians are going to come in. So we're right at the cusp of the end of the 70 years. The Medes are still there, but they're going to move, and the Persians are going to come in and start changing things. So they're getting ready for the exiles to go home. Now, you and I know when you're going on a trip, packing your bags is not the biggest thing in the world, is it? Preparing your mind and your heart for the travels that are coming are significant, right? So you're taking an international trip. Oh, you got a lot of thinking to do about packing the bags, but there's way more going on. Well, the exiles, can you imagine, as they are knowing that the 70 years are coming to the end, is God going to deliver? Is he going to fulfill his promises? They're packing their bags, but really they're preparing their hearts. So we see this. Look what it says. Darius, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. Babylon is now off the scenes. So they're ready. The staggering visions that we saw that Daniel had, that God gave him. I mean, things are starting to change. But we know this. As they're preparing to go back to the promised land, what appalled Daniel was that there was going to be continuing hardship. Now, Jesus said something along these lines he said in this world you will have trouble you know what a simple statement doesn't it sound just so simple in this world you'll have trouble until you have it and then all of a sudden i'm not talking about some mild things i'm talking about when life really throws you some curveballs right So Daniel's in the same spot. He's looking, and he's saying, yeah, being in the promised land isn't going to solve all the problems, is it? The temple getting rebuilt isn't going to solve all the problems. Jerusalem and being established again in God's city is, is not going to solve all the problems. And so Daniel's like, what is God doing? But what Daniel knew was that God's on the move. The question is, do you and I know that God is on the move right now? God is doing amazing things around this world. And we're just a small part of it, but God is using us right here in this area, and God is on the move. And Daniel is is sensing this, and and he's seeing this, and, and it's like he can't understand. He can't put all the pieces together. But who can right? You, you see all these different movies about end times, and, and they're so fun to read. The whole Left Behind series, the movies. I was watching one about a week ago, and I was like, wow! But you know, they're just fabrication of what it's all going to be like. We're all trying to piece together all these different details that the Bible gives, and like, what's it really going to be like? And, and that, that's where we find Daniel, and things are are changing a little bit. But it says also here, it says that he is reading the book of Jeremiah, right? In chapter 9, verse 2, it says that he's reading the prophet. He's reading the scriptures, right? It begs the question, though, if Daniel's reading Jeremiah, who was Jeremiah reading? Do you ever think like that? Like, do you ever think about how how does all this work together? Well, I'll tell you who Jeremiah was reading because it's the same person Daniel was also reading. They were reading Moses. They were reading Moses. Let me just show you a passage in in Deuteronomy chapter 31. It's Moses, right? And and, and he says this, For I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are. If you have been rebellious against the Lord while I am still alive and with you, how much more will you rebel against? after I die. This is the prophet Moses. I mean, remember who Moses was? The burning bush, you remember that? Bringing the people out of Egypt, cutting through the Red Sea that was parted. I mean, right, you remember that. And then God said, hey, we're not going to go directly to the promised land. I want to take a little detour, a detour through the wilderness, right? I mean, God had his plans. He was working it out. And, And now Moses is speaking to the people and he's saying, If you were rebellious, and that's what kept them in the wilderness for 40 years, right? Remember, they had rebelled against him. They built the golden calf. You remember all these stories? He said, if you were rebellious right after you saw the Red Sea part, if you were rebellious right after you saw God move you out of a nation, you think all this got changed? He says, how much more will you rebel after I die? Verse 28, assemble before me all the elders of your tribes and all your officials so that I can speak these words in their hearing and call the heavens and the earth to testify against them. For I know that after my death, you are sure to become utterly corrupt and to turn away from what I have commanded you in days to come. Disaster will fall on you because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord and arouse his anger by what your hands have made. Now that was written in 1400 B.C. We now move forward to Daniel, right? Daniel 605 B.C. The Babylon, Babylonians come and wrench them out of Judah. Then in 586 587 BC, 587, 586, is when Babylon finally marched onto Jerusalem, devastated the city, and destroyed the temple. Now, there's a couple ways to count the 70 years. And it does get a little confusing because it's not really clear that the numbers work exactly. And so let me give you three things that happen. First is, do you start the 70 years when the first wave was uh, taken. So in 605 B.C., the Babylonians came and captured a bunch of people and hauled them back to Babylon. Do you start the clock then? Or do you wait to the destruction of the temple and the city in 587, 586? If you do 70 years there, then you get the rebuilt temple in 516. If you do the Seventy years, you're not quite when the uh, exiles start going back in 539 B.C. So what's happening is you got these different things, and some people say, well, wait a minute, maybe we should just take the 70 a little bit symbolically. In other words, 70 is a number of perfection. And so when God finishes his work, he's going to bring them back. You can choose which way you want to count, but we do know a couple dates. We do know when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. And we do know when they rebuilt the temple in the second temple, 516. So I lean a little bit in that direction. But Daniel is, is here and he's reading these. He's reading Moses just like we read. And what I want you to see, and I think this is so important for all of us as we read our Bible, is Daniel is a bridge from Moses. So Daniel is this bridge from Moses. In fact, all the prophets read Moses. He was the hub. He was the center. And they never wrote and they never spoke except what was written in Moses and then what God revealed more in that particular area. So Jeremiah He's reading Moses, what we just read, chapter 31, and he sees these people are going to rebel. Well, now they're going to rebel, and God says, I'm going to tell you a little bit more. They're not only going to rebel, but they're going into exile for 70 years. Daniel is reading Moses, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and he's reading what Jeremiah said, but then added to that, God gives him some visions and some new things of what's being brought on. But what I want you to see, and this is so important, is it all starts with Moses. It all starts with what God started writing 3,500 years ago about what would play out in history. And so we see this amazing work of God. Now we read this and we, be, we begin to read Daniel chapter 9 a little bit more. And what I want to start thinking about, I said that he was God-centered. I said that his life was oriented around God. Now, a lot of us don't read these names very carefully, right? We we just hear these different things. So we see in verse 2 that he refers to, he says, according to the word of Yahweh, Yahweh. Now... It's translated in English as Lord, and notice in your English text, if you're on a device or whatever, usually what they do to tip the reader off is that this is God's personal name, is they put it in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The reason they do that is they want you and me, if if you're not reading Hebrew, to see that this is a personal name of God. Now, where did God get this personal name? Well, you know where it was. It was with Moses in Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush. God says, Moses, I'm going to use you to bring my people out of Egypt, and I am going to use you to lead my nation. And Moses says, well, who do I say you are? And what does God say? He says, tell them I am who I am. Yahweh, that's the play on the name. And it's a great I am. And so this is where Daniel is reflecting on Moses. And this God is not some abstract deity out there. This is the personal God who revealed his name to Moses so that he could lead his people. And Daniel is like, Wow, this personal God I'm calling out to just like Moses. Now, if that was the only way he referred to God that would maybe say, okay, we're just talking about a personal God. But then we find in verse 3, we find, so I turn to the Lord God. Now, a lot of us, we just say Lord God, and we just kind of swing by. We fly through these verses, and I'm telling you, you need to pause because this is telling you Daniel's concept of God. Not only is this Yahweh, this God that brought the people out of Egypt, he's a personal God, but now it says he's the Lord God. Adonai Elohim. Now, Hebrew, Adonai, Lord. What does that mean? Well, you don't get a definition of a word, contrary to what you were taught in second grade, just by looking in a dictionary. Where do you get the definition of a word? In its context, how it's used. So when I look at how Adonai is used through the Old Testament... I start discovering something about this God. Adonai. He's Lord, but it means that he he stands over everyone and everything. He determines. He's the boss. He's the top guy. He's the head person. Nothing, nothing happens without him saying yes. That's Adonai. That's how Adonai is presented in the Old Testament. Over and over we see him as Lord, as boss. Not just simply this one that you bow down to, right? He's not simply this one. He's the the hot guy here. But then it says Elohim. Adonai Elohim. Elohim is what? God. It's a simple Hebrew word for God. But again, how do we get the definition of Elohim? You start looking at how it's used. So you read Genesis 1.1. Moses wrote Genesis 1. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth you realize how radical that statement is? You can't read this in the way that the ancient Near East read about God. you got to see it in context that he's saying this God created the heavens and the earth. There is none like him. He is the mighty one. Elohim literally, right, would mean mighty one. This mighty person. But in context, it's like there's no one mightier. He's Lord, he's the boss, and he's so mighty nobody could overpower him. And he's personal, very different than all the other gods, right? All the gods in the ancient Near East, they they trying to appease them. This god's like, hey, you ain't appeasing me with your offerings. You're not going to appease me, right? I mean, it's going to take something big. So we we begin to see these different ways. It's the same thing, by the way, when Jesus taught us to pray. Remember, Remember he taught us the Our Father. He says, Our Father. And you can just read the word Father and just blow by that. But if you pause and reflect, what is a Father? Who is a Father? In the context of a home, who is the Father? Who's he supposed to be? Well, our Heavenly Father, right? He, he, he He's the kind one. He's the gentle one, but he's the leader. He's the one that's going to lead the family, take the family spiritually on a journey. He's the one that's going to guard the family. He's going to protect the family. He's going to provide for the family, right? I mean, all these pictures are brought all in one word. And so Daniel, we're getting this image because he uses all these different Phrases for God. And then he starts to describe God. It's not only that he, he says these names like Adonai or titles, Elohim, or the personal name Yahweh, but he, he starts saying this God is great. He's awesome. He's keeping his covenant. That means he's faithful. He does what he says he's going to do. That's what keeping covenant is. He's merciful. So all these things are Daniel's way of viewing God. Remember what I said, or what Tozer said. Your concept of God is the most important thing about you. But now, we need to take it a step further. This is so exciting. Daniel, reading Jeremiah, but also reading Moses, right? He recognizes something happened in the history of the world that had never happened since. And this becomes significant for what's going to happen post-exile. So when they leave Babylon, God is doing some amazing things. And here's what it is. And you can imagine Daniel Reflecting on this. Never in the history of the world has God spoken at one time, one place, to one audience. Mount Sinai. He brings his nation out of Egypt and God speaks to the men, women, and children All at the same time telling them who he is and how to live a life that will bring about flourishing that makes a pretty significant substantial nation never before had that happened and you can imagine this Moses said this has anything so great as this ever happened Has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any people heard the voice of God and lived? Do you remember? God's thundering and lightning. how do you present God? And, And God's speaking to the people so they could understand it. He wasn't just blowing smoke up there in the mountains. He wasn't just throwing lightning bolts all over the place. He was speaking so they could understand it. And Moses is saying, has anyone heard the voice of God and lived? Well, those people did. Has any God, this is Deuteronomy chapter 4, has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation? You know what he's talking about. The nation of Israel ripped out of Egypt. Has any God, like no God has ever done that. That's why he's Elohim. That's why he's Adonai. And he's a personal God. That's why he's Yahweh. Then he goes on, he says, you were shown these things so that you might know Yahweh is Elohim. Besides him, there is no other. So this is Daniel's God. He sees what God's doing in history. Well. God takes action through the prayers of the contrite. My second point, God takes action through the prayers of the contrite. Over and over, Daniel just aligns himself with his people. Now, we know who Daniel is. We've talked about that. But over and over, he says, we have sinned. Right? Verse 5, we have sinned and done wrong. I mean, just reading these words, and Daniel just brings himself into it. I don't know. Probably too many of us pray in comparison mode. I may be sinful, but hey, I'm not as sinful as so-and-so. You know, I've made some bad decisions, but my decisions, you know, they're not as sinful as that. Not Daniel, that's why we love him. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away. Like, where do we get off being so arrogant That we think we're all that no wonder the world looks at the church and laughs we think we're better than them way too often when in reality all we can say is we're like them we have sinned we have rebelled but we have found a savior Verse 6, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our ancestors and to all the people of the land. Right? Well, so let's jump into verse 18 just very quickly. He says, give ear our Elohim and hear. When, when, when he says give ear, he's not saying, hey, God, I just want you to listen right now. Right? It's, it's, it's a way to say, God, we we, we got to get this thing moving. We, got, we, we need you to take action. He goes on and says, open your eyes, as if God was blind, right? And see the desolation of the city that bears your name. Right? The city, Jerusalem. We do not make request of you because we are righteous. Whoa. See the humility there. It's not because of anything I've done or how good I am or how much money I give or anything like that. Look how he wraps this up. He says, but it's because of your great mercy. Think of the man walking into the temple and he wouldn't even look to heaven. And he just looks down with his eyes closed, his head bowed, and he's beating his breast. And he says, Lord, have mercy on me. Right there, there's a humility there. So he's saying in verse 17, look with favor, look, look, look with favor on your, your temple, right? The temple now was destroyed in 586, 587, 586, gone, destroyed, right? The city destroyed, the city that bears your name, verse 18, and he says, for your sake, don't delay, verse 19, right? God, you promised, but let me just say this. It's not ultimately about the promised land, is it? it's not ultimately about Jerusalem it's not ultimately about the temple what's it about what's it about it's about the presence of God and the only way anyone can stand in the presence of God is through the person of Jesus Christ and remember Daniel chapter 7 God had given them a vision One like the Son of Man was going to come onto the clouds, right? In front of the Ancient of Days. Like, who could understand all of this? But we know now, looking back, the only way anyone can stand in the presence of God is through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what I want to close with. Knowing God and rejecting God, both are highly consequential. Let me just say it again. Knowing God and rejecting God are both highly consequential. Knowing God... Through Jesus Christ, it's the only place you can find forgiveness of sin. It's the only place that will remove the shame and the guilt that we carry. It's in knowing Jesus Christ that death no longer has a sting. It's in knowing Jesus Christ that we have a hope, a great hope, a wide hope, a most expansive hope, or as we've tried to put into the series, an unimaginable future Right? That is hope. And you can't have that without Jesus Christ. So it's very consequential to have all your sin wiped away, to have your uh, shame and the guilt held at bay. But put it on the other way, those who reject Jesus Christ, they're going to die in their sin. They're going to try to deal with their shame and their guilt, and we know how our culture does it today. We dive into sex, we dive into drugs, we drive into alcohol, anything to reduce the pain of our sin, of our rebellion against God. It is so consequential. It is destroying marriages, it's destroying families, it's destroying our nation as we have rebelled against God. But let me just also say... For those that think hell is one big party. It's not what God says. It's very consequential. And the only thing I want to say is that there is no hope in hell. You and I cannot live without hope. And hell is a hopeless place. Rejecting God is consequential. Living in loneliness and isolation where there is no love is a terrible place to spend eternity. So, with Jesus Christ, there's an end to death, there's a conquering of sin, and there's a removal of shame and guilt and there is an expanse of hope father thank you for your vision thank you for the truth of your word thank you for the power of your word thank you for daniel showing us in just another way when so many others rebelled showed us how to orient our lives around you god help us to do that to your glory pray in jesus name amen Thank mm-hmm. you.